Welcome back to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast that previously asked the question, is Percibeth the greatest love story ever told? Decided yes, probably, and now is killing time until the TV show drops. Today, we are beginning the first Trials of Apollo book, as well as finishing it. That is right, one book, one episode. We are joined by some new and returning guests, so stick around. Welcome, everybody, to season three of Seaweed Brain Podcast. Who knew we would get here? We're in our third trip around the sun now as a podcast, and Carter and I are joined today by Fran from the Best Damn Camp. Ha. <laughs> Choosing a new accent today, I see. <laughs> Robert from the Damn Meme Page, as well as entering Storybrooke and the late, great intros to the Riot Adverse podcast. You know who I am. It's true. <laughs> and Megan from the Monstrous Woman podcast. Hello. Megan, this is technically your first time on like a real full book episode of Seaweed Brain. I failed to think of season three questions that we could ask you. How about this? Can you <laughs> name an emperor of Rome who was not one of the ones mentioned in the series? Um, Absolutely not. I didn't go to real high school. I went to high school in a church basement, and I can't be held responsible for any of the things I was supposed to learn during that time. I am a college graduate. I overcame, but I think I should get a pass on that one. Absolutely. And Indeed, I everyone should get a pass on that one. Indeed, I wouldn't have known if you were telling the truth or if you had gotten it right or wrong. I so could just say a random name. Yeah, you could have been like Caesar Augustus Gloop, and I would have been like, yep, mm-hmm. That's that a real person. Right. Not the Augustus Gloop. <laughs> well, I think what we're going to do for this conversation today, because we are covering the whole entire book, is we'll do a quick plot breakdown summary. And for the record, we're going to talk about the plot for the whole book. So obviously spoilers for all of the Hidden Oracle. But in full disclosure, I have not finished The Trials of Apollo yet. So I think we'll be pretty safe from spoiling anything beyond this book if you haven't read them yet. Okay, let's say this off the bat. We do not love The Trials of Apollo. If you are the kind of person who doesn't think you're going to read this and is a little on the fence about it, maybe you don't care that much about spoilers. We encourage you to enter this conversation as someone who has not read the books and will provide you enough information to go there with us and hopefully still have an okay time. It's our dream for listeners who haven't read The Trials of Apollo yet and are on the fence about reading it to be like, and maybe I don't have to read it and I can just listen to the five Seaweed Brain episodes and then I'll be ready for the Nico Will book in 2023. Yeah. We'll tell you about the good stuff. Don't worry. You'll you'll be kept abreast of all of the pre-established intellectual property. That we deem as important. (laughs) (laughs) From our position as God. (laughs) As the voice of God. That being said, shall we do a little plot breakdown summary? You should do it. You wrote out basically the whole thing. Please interject when the time comes. I'm going to do it in my Glenn Weldon voice too. (laughs) Shout out to Glenn. I do want to point out quick plot breakdown is like an essay you've written down here. Okay, but I needed to cover things. a thick paragraph. It's actually the only stuff that I remembered off the top of my head, which if you think about it that way is not actually impressive at all. 
So major differences from where we're coming from, aka the Heroes of Olympus, we are back in first person. Our narrator is a character that we are generally familiar with from the series, from way back in Titan's Curse throughout the original series, um, and also just the cultural zeitgeist. It's Apollo. This series is mirroring the Greek myths in which Apollo was struck down by Zeus to mortal form and forced to perform tasks in service to a mortal. There is a couple of myths about this that we have described in different levels. Um, one of the myths is uh, that Apollo was sent down in servitude as punishment for killing the Cyclopses as revenge for Asclepius. That we would have covered previously when talking about the blood of Olympus, because we meet Asclepius, who um, recounts the story. There's also a version of this myth, according to Wikipedia, in which Apollo is <laughs> sent down- quoting Wikipedia for the entirety of season three on this podcast. <laughs> Please, why and why not? Um, another version of the myth that is relevant to the story that is being told is that uh, Apollo's servitude is revenge for the killing of Python, who, of course, is the gigantic snake that used to be in charge of the Oracle at Delphi. Either way, uh, Apollo's servitude um, in the myths was under this specific mortal king named um, Admetus, who um, has a really good relationship with him. And Apollo helps him out with a bunch of shit. He like saves his life on multiple occasions, gets him basically a dowry in a way, kind of, to get him engaged. Anyway, yeah, that was an introduction. That's a mythological basis for the story. Great. I'm back to my Glenn Weldon impression. This series tracks Apollo being struck down by Zeus, we assume, for aiding Octavian, we assume, in attempting to awaken Gaia and destroy the world. This time, Apollo crash lands on Earth in the mortal form of Lester Papadopoulos. Much comedy is made surrounding the fact that he is pubescent and skinny and full of acne and may have zero powers. More on that later. The mortal he encounters and must serve under is Meg McCaffrey, a demigod who we discover is the child of Demeter, along with Carpoy named Peaches, and Percy Jackson himself. More on that later. Uh, together, they all get to Camp Half-Blood, but all is not well. Demigods are disappearing. The power of prophecy is lost to all. Rachel Elizabeth Dare is very mad. And also, Apollo now has to learn how to treat his children like siblings staying in the Apollo cabin. Through a three-legged death race, Apollo, Meg, and Apollo's kids discover that our antagonists for the series will be the Triumvirate, capital T, a group of the worst Roman emperors kept semi-alive as ghost kings by mortal memory. Mm, not Carter and I's mortal memory, though. <laughs> Nero is the beast. Um, he has an alternate version side of himself, uh, who turns out is manipulating Meg to work for him. Ah, twist! And also kidnapping slash like adopting all of the missing demigods. Apparently, this is a plot by the Triumvirate that is older than Luke and Chrono, centuries in the making, perhaps? It's giving the Eternals, why didn't we know that they existed sooner? Where have they been? <laughs> and a first big step in order to stop them is going to be for Apollo to fight Python and reclaim all of the Oracle powers. That was a good summary. Well, can I just add one thing in? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, just from that mention of um, how did we not hear from them before? I think it's in this book, but I could be misremembering because I'm sure I've like compartmentalized all five books into one memory. But I think he's mentioned that like they've kind of been in the background. So, you know, those hidden sort of benefactors to Luke's army. They've said they were being like financially supported by someone. Yes. It's kind of hinted <gasps> that, that they book. were meant. Okay, it was this book. So, yeah, it's hinted that it was the uh, Nero and his goonies doing Wait, all of that. That is kind of slayful lampshading from Rick, actually. I did love that moment. They specifically <laughs> call out the princess Andromeda and say, I think, didn't you ever wonder how the fuck we afforded a gigantic cruise ship <laughs> when Kronos is um, goo-trapped in Tartarus? Yeah, a 19-year-old boy buying a cruise ship. I mean, yeah. like... 
I'm like, it gives you some perspective on the original series. You're like, yeah, you know what? Kronos might be the immortal uh, titan of, of time, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But like, that does not translate to money and you need money to buy big ship. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I love not that. Not something move. that occurred to Percy, though. I don't think we can expect for him to have out of that. Um and I, I don't know why Rick attacked him like that. <laughs> At the end of the book, we get a new prophecy in Gasp, the form of a limerick, and it goes like this. There was once a god named Apollo who plunged in a cave blue and hollow. Upon a three-seater, the bronze fire-eater was forced death and madness to swallow. So. Not a limerick. Gasp. Apparently, those are the scariest prophecies of them all. I do love the slander of limericks. I think it's really funny that they're all like, <laughs> yeah that that being said i don't know if anyone wants to play this game but it's it's a game i want to play what was your favorite haiku chapter title right this is something that the people may not know if you haven't read these books every oh, single yeah. chapter begins with a haiku by apollo presumably who you might remember yeah. from the titan's curse is really, really bad at writing haiku, but is like very into them. And also when they say haiku, what they mean is five syllables, seven syllables, and then five syllables. Not anything a more, um, you know, refined scholar of Japanese poetic history would consider <laughs> to be a haiku. There's no kegel in there for you to look out for, but yes. <laughs> Mine is scale of one to 10. How would you rate your demise? Thanks for your input. My, okay, so my favorite is want to hit Leo? That is understandable. Hunk Muffin earned it because something else we should mention is that at the end of the book, <laughs> Leo and Calypso return to Camp Half-Blood um, on Festus as we knew they were on their way to do. We isn't the readers, but literally nobody else. No, Leo sends uh, like a visual audio scroll message that lets them know that he is actually alive. But they're really confused because the scroll message came a long time ago and he didn't send any details and gets cut off partway through. Help us, Obi-Wan. You're our only hope. But cut off the hope message. It's like, help us, Obi-Wan. You're our only end of message. Right. I have to say, this book has my favorite scene in the Riordan verse that's not Persebeth related. Because Leo scared the crap out of the camp, the camp essentially lines up to punch him, which is hilarious. <laughs> yep. And then Chiron comforts him. He's like, it's okay. It's all over. And then Chiron just comes from under the fucking blanket and decks him in the stomach. And I'm like, hey, <laughs> yes. Yeah, he like kicks him, right? With his horse foot. Yeah. What is Chiron good for if not mistreating children? <laughs> and, um... <laughs> yeah. I mean, his brand. he had to do a three-legged death race that once previously had someone lose both of their arms that had to then be reattached. This man is a menace to society. Save the children. It's giving Triwizard Championship. Exactly. That was what the three-legged death race reminded me of. Anyway, one final plot point. Uh, there is a final battle sort of at the end against a big robot statue um, featuring Percy coming back and fighting in the battle. It's very fun. There are water powers involved. It's a question mark on whether Meg is now turning against Nero, like a double twist. But we've decided that Leo and Calypso are basically, based on the Limerick prophecy, going to guide Apollo on this new quest. Mm. Great. So all of that being said, could we get some initial takes, some initial small takes, you know, in, in a couple sentences, perhaps, from everyone on, on this book? I think it was a pretty entertaining book. I really like when a narrator is a dickhead. I think that's like a lot of people don't, <laughs> but I love when they are assholes. I just find it really entertaining because they also like, 
even by the end of the book, we've seen some initial growth. He cares more about other people. He's sacrificing himself to save others. We love a little bit of growth. Great. Robert? I didn't read or listen to Trials of Apollo until like the year the fifth book came out. So I'm like, okay, well, I got to catch up. And my first initial idea after I finished the first book was like, Rick really went very heavy in the unlikable character trope that you assume grows and matures and becomes a better person towards the end. I'm not going to say if he does or doesn't, that's just sort of the implication. But at the start point where Apollo currently is, I would argue Rick went too far and kind of made him a bad character. (laughs) An unenjoyable one, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Megan? I did not reread or re-listen to this book since the one and only time I've read it. So I appreciate your summary, Erica, because I didn't enjoy it. So I wasn't going to do it again. Um, Respect. I forgot how little actually happens in this book because they all blend together. And it's like just Apollo being at camp almost exclusively. Yes. I don't particularly enjoy Apollo as a narrator. And he's not a character I'm super interested in seeing be redeemed, which doesn't set me up to like this series that much. Because even within the Ryan verse where they, you know, present like kiddie versions of myths and make it more accessible to children, he like is inappropriate with underage women and like preys on his sister's group of teenage girls who have already said mm. that they don't want relationships. I was never that excited for his like five year journey of character development. I, his five year plan. I only <laughs> read it for Nico. Mm. But I do enjoy the idea of the Roman emperors rising against as villains it was something I didn't think Rick would have had the like guts to write originally because it's far more political. I'm, and honestly, mm-hmm. I could be reading too much into what he was going for, but so I, I do like the villains of the series. Yeah. Going back to what you said initially, I wanted to shout out something a listener at Morgan Holder 13 said on Instagram uh, that this book is basically a Camp Half-Blood bottle episode, which I was like, oh, you know, honestly, yeah, there's not that much that happens. And it's just such a small cast of people, partially because the demigods are disappearing and we don't have any of our old main characters. It's really just Apollo, some of his kids, Will, Nico, and Meg. And like factually, geographically, they are basically at Camp Half-Blood the entire time. The entire time. time. Yeah. It's sort of like those like 10 chapters in Lost Hero where the where Jason Piper and Leah are at Camp Half-Blood, but it's worse because it's like the majority of the book. <laughs> they do things. There are like little skirmishes that we didn't mention because they're not that interesting. There's this whole sequence with the ants from a short story. Mm-hmm. If in case you yeah. did not remember or read the short story, there's a an ant colony. Is that yeah. the right term? A giant, giant ants. Where they have gigantic Greek ants, and we spend a lot of time there. They're, in fact, very yeah. important to this book. It's weird. I don't love that. I love that. It was so good. Really? It was awesome. If you've been an avid Seaweed Room listener, I think you'll recall that I'm among the people who have championed more Camp Half-Blood content in these books. Like, we have never spent enough time at Camp Half-Blood. And I think that might be my favorite thing about this book, is that we just get more geography. We also get the updated new geography with all of the the new cabins and stuff, because we really Mm -hmm, hadn't mm -hmm. spent almost any time at Camp Half-Blood during the entirety of Heroes of Olympus. Mm -hmm. So all of that is fun. I do love the three-legged death race. Yes. That's the one thing I didn't like from this book i didn't like the death race because i felt that the information that we gained from that section to do with python and the beast and all that sort of stuff could have been gained in a more interesting way like the 
the hint of Python could have happened with the hallucination that Apollo has when he gets into camp. Like he's immediately kind of given this idea of what's going on. And then the first time they're in the grove, like the grove seems to kind of lead to very mysterious places. Something playing with their mind and them learning more information about that or finding a way into their labyrinth by accident through the grove because it messes with people's minds. Like I think there was a possibility of having it be more central to the plot instead of like a sort of side capture the flag, but with a bit of plot. Like, because it, it, it was just, it was too much of two different things. <laughs> that is such a good take, Fran. And I appreciate you saying that because I do, like, the entire plot of this book is so blurry to me. Maybe because I just wasn't yeah. paying very close attention when I was reading it. But they do, like, basically the three-legged death race, which is like a capture the flag type game for the campers, leads them into the labyrinth, which they're now using mm-hmm. kind of for training since Hazel brought it back um, somewhat unintentionally. And they happen to basically visit Wait, where is Python again? Delphi. Uh, in Delphi, yeah. yeah. Uh, at the bottom of Delphi or something. Yeah, so they visit Meg and Apollo, who are tied together as you know, three legs, visit Delphi, and they get a bunch of information while they're on this three-legged death race. Carter. Should I? Do you want to? Yeah, go okay. ahead. I, I'm really concerned. We were concerned about how to do this episode because not everyone appreciates... Um, critique on the internet (laughs) 90 minutes um, of roasting (laughs) i I really feel that this book is missing some of the fundamental basics for an engaging middle grade fantasy adventure novel i i don't think that it has a very strong sense of direction and a strong sense of emotional dynamics there's some stuff that they give apollo to be sad about and to be passionate about but i don't feel very convinced by it and i don't i think part of the problem is just that they don't have that much of a strong concept of how we should understand Apollo as a person as opposed to as a god and what Apollo's emotional landscape really looks like other than just that there are a few touch points that they bring up. But it seems like they're bringing these things up almost randomly. We're going to circle back to that a little bit, though. Yeah. All of that is sort of setting aside the fact that I also just don't like Apollo. The like logic of it just doesn't seem... To make that much sense to me. I'm talking specifically about the end journey here, which I think is fun and wacky in a lot of ways, but also is placed in the book as sort of like a key penultimate struggle for them that pushes Apollo to the breaking point. And I think that the way that we handle that is really weird. I, I would say that this reminds me of maybe a C-tier Marvel movie in the sense that there is a lot of confusion, but it's clearly made by very competent people Mm. but also really weighed down and or buoyed by, depending on your perspective, by pre-existing intellectual property that we are searching for constantly. And that Wait, that's so true. Moments. The Hidden Oracle is the multiverse of madness of the Riordan verse. I can see that, yeah. <laughs> it's a fun time, but it didn't make a lot of sense. And tonally, it didn't really fit. <laughs> you didn't have the protagonist you wanted. The protagonist was not what I wanted, <laughs> but like, fine, you know. I'm glad I experienced it. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that that is so accurate considering how all the other books, I think the only other book that has, has a similar tone to Hidden Oracle is The Dark Prophecy because those two are the only books that kind of stand, like the last three books are the best ones in the series. Like I've heard that from a lot of people. They make the whole series so much better. Like the first two, I always had a little bit of issues with them. I still enjoyed them because like I, I like messy characters <laughs> and Apollo is like the <laughs> epitome of messy. Mm-hmm. But those last three books, like we understand his character a lot more. The plot makes way more sense. I think this mm, is definitely, mm-hmm. this is the issue that I always found a little bit with Rick is that he was writing Trials of Apollo at the same time he was writing Magnus Chase. 
And Magnus Chase <laughs> is honestly the first book is stunning. better. It's stunning. It's, it's better. <laughs> the first book is stronger. Speaking of Magnus Chase, it's referenced in the beginning when Apollo visits Percy's apartment. Yeah, where's Annabeth? Where's Annabeth? Oh, she's visiting her cousin in Boston. Ah, yeah. tie-in. I literally went, ay, <laughs> while reading to an invisible Rick. Ay, <laughs> finger guns. I was going to say, Fran, the first two books are weaker and the final three books are banging. What does that remind us of? Another series that perhaps we've just finished reading? Perhaps a pattern? I love and respect Rick, but I feel like he knew exactly where he was going with the series and the first couple books were just you know him warming up really yeah and i'm gonna say it's the same situation when he was writing heroes of olympus he was also writing king chronicles at the same time king mm-hmm. chronicles got the worst of it because he really like did not give a damn about those books and you can tell they're good but you can tell he didn't care mm-hmm. and then the first two books for heroes of olympus he was writing at the same time also not the best but then eventually he's writing the rest of them on their own is this like a timing issue I, I, I don't have the, the numbers in front of me. It sounds like what we're perhaps looking at is literal bandwidth. Where I think it's literal bandwidth. Are yes. not as good when he's doing too many of them at the same time. And yeah. he's still releasing a book, at least a book a year, if not more than that, which yeah. is just wild. It just goes to show what an amazing storyteller he is, that he can do so much of that content. And like, this is, you yeah. know, the, maybe the weakest thing that he turns out, which is still a yeah. fun time. Definitely. And the irony is the fact that he's writing one a book a year now, but when Magnus Chase and Charles Apollo and Heroes Olympus and King Chronicles are coming out, it was two books a year, six yes. months apart. <laughs> it's like literally that. That's horrifying. <laughs> Insanity. Insanity. Yeah. Yeah. God. And writing screenplays. Anyway, I will say that all of these things being said, I think I've already shared mostly how I thought about the series. I like the premise very much for the rest of these mm. five books. There's this quote on page 344. It's towards the end of the book. Percy and Apollo are talking. And Apollo says, It's not the same. You humans grow and mature. Gods do not. And Percy says, Are you sure about that? You seem pretty different. And then later, Rachel, a few pages later, Rachel says to Apollo, Things can turn out differently. Apollo. That's the nice thing about being human. We only have one life, but we can choose what kind of story it's going to be. And I'm I'm generally pretty sucker for this idea of a god kind of learning how to be mortal and learning what makes mortal life meaningful. The fact that it's finite and we don't have all the powers in the world. I would maybe rather reread Cersei than reread this book again for that plot. Um, <laughs> but I see, I see it. I love it. I love the concept. I feel like with Cersei, it works so well because it's established in her character and through the storytelling that she is a god who should have been human and she has never fit in the world. Whereas Mm -hmm. Apollo is like the king, the golden son of Zeus, loves being a god, loves abusing that power, has never thought or questioned it for a minute. And then it's like, oh, we're going to turn him into a person. And it it just Mm -hmm. makes him so irritating. And then additionally, his reward and the thing he's working towards is being a god again. Right. That's an Mm -hmm. excellent Mm -hmm. point. Also, this is Circe by Madeline Miller, if you haven't been in a bookstore in the last (laughs) four or five years um, or on the internet. (laughs) I also think that having a main character who has no powers is an interesting concept that I often am like, let's have more of that. But in this book, I don't know if it quite 
lands. I mean, I enjoy the way that he gets pulled along throughout all of these things and has no idea what he is and isn't capable of. No, but that's the thing is because like, does he actually not have powers? No, there's just a lot of wild inconsistency about what he's capable of doing and how we should understand his current mortal identity as a result of that extreme inconsistency. It's weird because he's, he's officially quote unquote mortal because like Will tries to give him nectar and ambrosia and it starts to burn him up. But he also can temporarily, I guess, in cases of extreme need, access his godly strength or other godly powers, which, sure, why not? Zeus is an asshole, but at least we'll give him a little bit of a fighting chance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and take this as an opportunity to segue from, like, initial basic takes into talking about Apollo himself, like, as a character, as a narrator. Um, I have a question because I feel like when I opened up this book to start reading it, I did not recognize the voice of Apollo as the one that we had encountered in Percy Jackson. Correct. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. I literally was like, this is a different <laughs> character. He did not used to talk in like heightened, elevated speech. Thought that he was, he was way a funnier. Surfer dude. Yeah. He was he a was chill bro-y. guy. He was like a sun dude, like who loved to ride the it sun chariot. <laughs> and he wasn't like, well, it is thine responsibility, young Meg McCaffrey. And I was like, where, where is this coming from? Uh, I will say this right now. It's not a, it's not a big spoiler. I don't think it's any character that appeared in a previous series, other than like Percy and Sally. And for this instance, I can think of Rick drastically changes their character and most of the time in a bad way. I think, are you referring to Leo? Not even I feel Leo. like I've heard people say that. Actually, oh, Calypso, no, you know, it's Calypso. Calypso is significantly worse. How is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll find out when you get to the next book. Okay, okay. She gets worse? <laughs> yeah. I was just uh, saying, in this case, Leo has just stayed consistently awful. There's just less to distract you from it in this next book. Mm. And that's the real issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Constant rubbish. Because as is hinted at the end of this book, uh, the next adventure... Apollo has his companions Leo and Calypso, and it's mm-hmm. Hmm. <laughs> oh my! It's uh, so unlikable. All three of them. <laughs> Everyone's least favorites. Everyone's problematic least favorites. <laughs> yeah, literally, that was the book that made me think. You know what? Apollo's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! <laughs> I'm glad that Apollo is the POV character in this book because I think I would I would never have finished the series if we got Leo and Calypso POVs in this. I'd be done. I'd be like, nah, I'm out. We've had I'm a good actually- run trying to listen to the audiobook of Dark Prophecy because I cannot. I read Dark it. Prophecy and then took several months of a break before I finished the series because I wasn't sure if I could do it. <laughs> oh. It is definitely the worst of them. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's always the, the old adage of like, oh, you know, just get through the first couple of seasons and it gets really good. Like, mm, yeah, mm. but you still have to get through the first couple of seasons. <laughs> yeah. I kind of love that. Like throughout all creators, like in all forms and all media, it's like, yeah, you just got to skip the first couple and then you'll get there. <laughs> it's like that with our podcast. Just skip the first <laughs> few episodes and then we find more of a stride. <laughs> I okay I want to talk specifically more about (laughs) Apollo's voice because one of the things it's not just that he speaks at times in a way that is very old-fashioned he also Mm. he didn't used to do this I think Rick's way of reminding us that Apollo is a god over cultural properties is to make him constantly reference things in a way that is like like if Tina Fey were bad at her job is sort of the energy that we have here um (laughs) 
But also specifically mm. because like the references are not coherent to like a standpoint, mm-hmm. a personality. In the first page, he references in quick succession Babe Ruth's performance at like a World Series <laughs> game and then the Britney Spears 2007 VMA performance which I did write a fat paragraph about in our Google Doc. I don't think I should read all <laughs> of it. Can we post it on Twitter or something? We can, <laughs> we can post this in some other way. All, all there is to say about this is mostly that it's really funny because half of the time, like Apollo's references make him sound like an elderly person when I was your age, get off my lawn type of person who is throwing out cultural references that really nobody reading these books will be able to engage with positively, probably. And the other half of the time, he sounds like a millennial gay man. Like this Britney Spears thing is, that is the energy that we have. Carter, you're going to think you're being homophobic. (laughs) But it's specifically, when I say millennial, I mean like an elder millennial gay man who came of age in a time when we had a very different discourse about celebrity like the britney spears thing i don't need to tell you that people have vastly re-theorized britney spears in the past three years Mm -hmm. but this performance specifically he's referring to the debut performance of jimmy moore which is of course the debut single off of blackout that is like Mm -hmm. pop music history like you i I don't care what the cultural reception was in the moment it's this is not a take that even most people would have. It's like the gap. What I'm trying to get at here is that I don't think that in 2021, certainly, this is the thing that you would hear from basically anybody. No one who knows that much about the Britney Spears and some VMA performance with like the benefit of a basic level of feminist pop cultural understanding would have this take, which is why it's so weird. Because a lot of the swings that Rick makes with these pop cultural takes from Apollo don't land. And like, I don't know what he's trying to yeah. do with them half the time, but the half the time when I do understand what he's trying to do with them, I just yeah. do not think that he is speaking enough from his own knowledge to um, actually stick the landings. But it's really funny sometimes. <laughs> I think what Rick should have been going for is Tahani Al-Jamil in The Good Place. That's exactly Name dropping. Like, oh, my great friend Britney that Spears. Yeah. They're just meandering. They're not fast enough. They're not quippy. There's some lines that will make me laugh, but he, I just don't think he's funny. I just think he's yeah. rude. Yeah. And he's like woke when it comes to gay rights, but he's not a feminist, you know? And he has like many problems. Like everything he says about body image is terrifying and garbage. Yeah. 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 (laughs) The way Apollo describes past events and memories just sort of reads like a family guy cutaway. Hey, Lois, you remember the time I befriended Beethoven or something like that? You know what I mean? <laughs> I forget which musician it was. I think it might have been Bach where he's like, oh, I went to go visit my friend Bach only to find out he's been dead for like 200 years. That is, in fact, a line from, from the book. Or he says something like, I don't understand time. I tried to text Mozart or something. Mozart, yeah. <laughs> only to find out. Yeah. Well, I was trying to talk to my good friend Bach, but he wouldn't answer his phone. So then I dialed Mozart. And then I remembered <laughs> that Mozart didn't have a phone. So I had to text my very good friend, Britney Spears. Yeah, let's just really I think Tahani would have been better. Tahani's like doable too. Like you don't actually have to have knowledge about things to write Tahani. No, you just have to name drop. That's you all she has. Literally Google who are famous people. <laughs> <laughs> Not make takes that won't age well. Like you can't make big swings about pop culture because our understanding mm-hmm. of them changes so constantly Mm -hmm. and if you're not going to be able to like put ideology into it of like why we think this now it just ages really poorly absolutely Absolutely. let's pivot let's pivot let's talk about apollo skill sets we've gotten into this a little bit the fact of him being able to invoke his godly skills at some point yes it's weird it doesn't make much sense it's giving shonen protagonists but the one thing that i wanted to circle back on here is the other thing that he does here that we have not mentioned which is the fact that when he is doing training with his children to see what versions of his godly powers he has as a mortal he gets frustrated even though he's 
kind of doing okay, it seems like, at a lot of these skills, but he gets, like, tired easily and he's not perfect. He swears on the river sticks that he will not use any of these skills. And then later on in the book, proceeds to, in fact, use all of these skills. I don't see the vision. I'm really confused by this. He says, like, breaking an oath on the river sticks is, like, no biggie. Right? Like, there are bigger it's, oths it's, that are it's more It's no biggie thing. Gods. Like, normally it's no biggie if you're a god, and I think he still has this mentality to, like, oh my god, it's no big deal. But the idiot forgot he's a fucking mortal. But also, okay, yeah. even at that level, like, number one, like, we've seen gods swear in the river sticks, and in the past, in all ten of the books before this, we have actually taken that as a meaningful restriction on what options they can take in the future, right? Even if they are gonna play there with their words a little bit. Though. There are slight loopholes of like how delayed some reactions are to it. Like yeah. obviously they swore on the river sticks to like claim their kids. I'm like, you, you may have done it, but you still take your damn fucking long time. Like, yeah, they exactly. Find ways. It's like even though there are loopholes, even though they like things that don't get specified do not come to bear. Like it still means something, right? Whereas Apollo mm-hmm. here is like it kind of means something, but I don't know. And we are running out of ground truths left in this book series we like got rid of death last book in case you all don't remember and what is left i agree that it doesn't have any power in the way that rick writes it i felt offended on annabeth's behalf because i feel like she went to extensive lengths to like set the tone for us of what that means to swear on the Mm. river sticks and like explain it to percy and how like he couldn't throw that kind of thing around because he absolutely would if she wasn't there and then it gets thrown out and i feel like apollo's thought process is like i am gonna become a god before i have to actually pay for breaking my promise so it's not a big deal and that's his interpretation Mm -hmm. of it but that Mm -hmm. doesn't work if you consider that that's how percy holds zeus accountable and zeus actually follows through even if there are like loopholes, this isn't a loophole. It's him stating something and then immediately doing that exact thing. Like there's not any gray area in it. It just loses all its power. It's just confusing because what are the stakes is the is the looming yes. question. What are the stakes? I assume that there is a payoff for this at some point in the future. But There is a minor one in this book in that he breaks the oath and yeah. Meg is captured, like nearly leading to her own death. Like that mm-hmm. happens immediately after his first breaking. So there's kind of like a mini one, but it's like, I think his whole thing is that Apollo is a dumb bitch. Mm-hmm. He seemed to think that by making this, like, swearing on the sticks, like, oh, you know, I'm going to be a god later, it's fine, like, it's not going to be a big deal. Like, when he breaks the oath, he seems to not think it's going to be a big deal. I think that's kind of, like, his main process is that he believes because he is a god, it won't make much of a difference. But I think he's more justifying it to himself because mm-hmm. he's very much, like, still in this huge denial phase of everything that's going on. Like, I kind of think of... Not to bring Legend of Korra into this, but to bring Legend of Korra into this. Do it. Absolutely. Book two Korra is a dick. And she is a dick because she has experienced intense, insane trauma and Mm -hmm. has not dealt with it whatsoever. And And she has a god complex. She's got a god complex. And this guy (laughs) is the epitome of a god (laughs) complex because he is a god. I think this whole book, both the first and second one, not to like spoil too much for the second one, is like basically setting up this whole situation of he is in so much denial of his situation that he is continuing to be his reckless godly self without even really thinking about the level of consequence because in his mind the consequence don't mean anything because he is a god everything will work itself out because there is no consequence for a god because there shouldn't be that's not how things work so i think it's more just like this huge denial phase of like he's just acting 
like a dick because he doesn't want to deal with the situation he's in and he's just making all these terrible stupid decisions because he's kind of panicking and doesn't want to admit it i think that sums up why the series doesn't work for me is because it's truly apollo hurting people and then learning afterwards that he has to pay attention to what his actions and like eventually five books later being sorry that he put people in danger and hurt people and it just is like if you can't get on the basic human level of like caring about others and empathy i don't care about you and i don't Mm. want to invest time in teaching you that like i'd rather leave you behind at this point you're just weighing us all down and it feels very much like trying to argue with like middle-aged conservative people who you like kind of hope could like maybe get to a good place at one point in their life but it's like why are we investing so much time Mm -hmm. as someone some of our favorite villains would have once said let's burn it all to the ground it is not worth it i don't need to spend this many books trying to convince this uh old god that uh, he should be a good person. Should we move on to quickly touch on the dynamic between Meg and Apollo? Because they are our two main characters in this book. So the story starts off with Apollo like falling from Olympus, something, something, religious metaphor, something, something, and landing in a dumpster. He fights a couple of of uh, Nero slash the Beast's henchmen. He meets Meg. He explains to Meg his whole ordeal of how he's mortal. And then he tells Meg, oh yeah, like I have to be paired with a mortal who like commands my every move. And I, I, oh, and I and I want to pick Percy Jackson because he's like the best demigod. And Meg's like, actually, I claim you. You're my bitch now. You do everything I say. Mm-hmm. I love Meg. I think Meg is just such an interesting character. Admittedly, at this point, this isn't when I got interested in Meg. So I don't want to talk too much about why I love her. <laughs> but there are things that later on. Um, if a character has trauma, they are my child. Um, and I will protect them with my life. There, are, there is like a hate group for Meg on social media that's like dedicated oh God. to like hating her character and all this sort of stuff. And I <laughs> have had to hold myself back so much. From... It's not worth it, Fran. It's, it's not, not worth, worth it. it. It's not worth it, but I want to. Rage. <laughs> it sounds bad. Her trauma makes her so fascinating as a character and everything that we learn about her and her dynamics with other characters. Like even though she's 12, she acts so much younger because she's had Mm -hmm. so much stunted growth from her experience with the Beast. And it just adds this in, like, she latches on so quickly to the people around her that it's just, it's kind of heartbreaking to see, like, that, especially at the end of the book of this decision of, like supporting the man who she believes has helped raise her and will protect her from Mm -hmm. the monster and the person that she has in a sense bonded with who is like he's still with Narsal but he's not being cruel to her which is something she's not really experienced for Mm -hmm. a lot of her life yeah and I just oh it's it gets so much better as well I just I love that dynamic I love that Meg is in a sense the humanity that Apollo has to learn to like understand mm. and meg is going to be this sort of central element to him of him understanding human complexities mm-hmm. when i first started reading the book i remember messaging you guys and being like why is she, are we sure she's 12 because she's acting way younger and you were all very quick to be like oh no 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 it's because she you know she has a arrested development and i was like okay that makes <laughs> lots of sense she my only opinion on her is that she i like that she's a child of demeter because i think it's fun to see some new powers at play here in a main character And then I just think that she strikes me so hard as like a reverse Constance Contraire from the Mysterious Benedict Society (laughs) because she is 
like small and sassy and very smart, but instead of being much younger than she seems, <laughs> she is much older than she seems. I do like Megan Apollo's dynamic. I will say it's very on brand for Rick's feminism of like, I'm still going to center this man who has done awful things. I'm still going to invest all our energy mm-hmm. in redeeming him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the girl is going to be like so smart and sassy and she's totally going to boss him around, which is like <laughs> so cool for us girls. And like, you all can like totally insert yourself in Meg and that'll be so good for you. And I won't actually have to send her. Oh, not Samira Olabas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Annabeth and Raina and so on. Erica, you have to say what? this thing about bullying the child. Because um, <laughs> I also felt this. The like, one time that I thought Apollo was consistently funny is when he's bullying Meg. <laughs> Because he's, he's not actually he's, bullying her. It's just like in his narration. He's genuinely appalled. He's like actually horrified by some of her aesthetic choices. She dresses terribly. Hilarious. Here's a quote here um, from when they go visit Sally and Percy that says, Sally cupped her hand under Meg's chin. Thankfully, Meg did not bite her. Sally's expression <laughs> remained gentle and reassuring, but I could see the worry in her eyes. No doubt she was thinking, who dressed this poor girl like a traffic light? It's so good. One thing I do agree with Apollo is that Sally Jackson is a MILF. That was one good take he had. <laughs> he does say this. We are going to have to talk more about that. I think what we're going to do is we need to address like the villain stakes journeys point and then we'll take a quick break and then we'll talk about Solangelo and Percy slash yeah. Sally. Yeah. We, we've Okay. We've talked a little bit about the villains. I'm going to agree with Meg's earlier take that the villains are sort of the most well-conceived and well-executed portions of the book. They made capitalism the villain. (laughs) They made capitalism the villain, which is, like, very smart, very useful. And, like, it makes sense as a progression also after, like, the past two villain arcs that we've had that the biggest, baddest villain that has survived the longest, most resilient, but also the one that you wouldn't see the whole time during the earlier conquests would be capitalism. Perfect. (laughs) I love that. Um, (laughs) There are some weird things about it. Like, I think that the stakes are made really confusing where um, when they are talking about why Nero is bad, it's this weird mixture of he killed his mother and like all these other people, he hurt Christians. But then they also throw out these things like, oh, maybe he's bad because of capitalism. Separately, when we're talking about the impact that Nero will have if he wins on the world, they also have this (laughs) weird mixture of talking about how Long Island needs to be saved because God forbid something happened to Long Island. Right Literally, after he the- also says he's going to take everything. Like he wants to rule the whole world, but specifically he wants Long Island to be a summer palace. And then Apollo's reaction is like, not Long Island. What's and going I, on? Literally, if it's Long Island, if Long Island is the short-term problem here, I think we can wait a few more years and deal with this on a larger scale later. Yeah. So funny. I had forgotten about And I'm saying that. that as someone who lives on Long Island. On the island of Long. <laughs> no, you don't. Robert, we both technically live on Long Island. Technically. Shut up. Don't, you, don't you lump me in with them. I live in Queens, damn it. Queens is a separate island. My Spider-Man complex will only <laughs> accept if I live in Queens. It is also where Camp Half-Blood is. So, okay. Yeah. The center is of the universe. Is that Apollo's attachment? Because never have we established that he loves his children that much. He's like surprised <laughs> and only vaguely remembers their names. And I get that he spent like five minutes there and that they did some like camp activities. But that is that really enough for him to be like, not Long Island? That I will not stand for that. The Hamptons, uh, maybe? I, I don't know. I don't think they spell it out. Nah, just headcanon. 
Apollo has like a really good like deli he likes in Long Island. He doesn't want that destroyed. He doesn't give a shit about his kids. <laughs> yeah, I was just trying to say, I think Apollo was confirmed in the past to be the one who has claimed his kids the most. Yeah, him and Hermes, I think, have claimed the most kids. Which, which, which isn't the good thing that like the book kind of tries to make that out to be. I think there's a moment of like Apollo being like, you know, e- even though like he didn't know his kids too well, he's like, oh, I always try to claim my kids. I'm like, that just reads more like you're quote unquote claiming the trophies from the people you slept with. Oof. I agree. Yikes. Also, can we talk about the way that they split up the powers between Apollo's kids? Because one of them is just like a jazz musician, and I'm a little confused on that choice. <laughs> and he still comes to Camp Half Blood, though, in case the jazz musician needs to think about oh, those monsters. Oh, to be a demigod of a lesser Olympian who is just a great jazz player and gets to hang out at Camp Half Blood and is like, yeah, I know Percy Jackson. That is the dream. <laughs> but then Apollo's your dad slash mom. That's fine. Uh, if I was sick of jazz, I'd be fine with that. Yeah. But didn't he? Jazz powers, though, like didn't jazz like him powers? playing the instrument. Did this guy it? have fucking jazz powers? I do not remember. He does. I still Music feel magic. like it's a bad choice because <laughs> you could divide up other things that Apollo has reign over. There are a lot of them, and why was one of them the saxophone? My biggest curiosity is if Will is going to suddenly have magic music powers when they go to Tartarus because that would, you know, obviously affect the story more towards a Orpheus Eurydice. Orpheus, yeah, an Orpheus Eurydice tale. I'm just curious okay. if Will is going to suddenly, you know, the stones wept and they let me in and I can <laughs> sing us home again. Maybe he can talk saying and then that'll be like a little different from like regular old music powers, you know, like chimes. R- Rick should call it back 180. And if if he has to sing a song to open up the doors of the underworld, it should be something like he referenced. I think it has to be Hillary Duff to be in the riot in verse. I think that's a rule. So, yes, not, yes, the yeah. so yes, he's going to sing. Gimme, gimme more to right the wrongs <laughs> of the to right the wrongs. Wait, anyway, Carter, can you talk a little bit more about this thing about the manifestation of the evils of capitalism in Nero? Okay. Capitalism as the villain makes perfect sense to me. The idea that Nero and the triumvirate are the right way to have the evils of capitalism manifested into a tangible metaphor that we can have conflict with throughout the series doesn't really make as much sense to me. They like even have this whole conversation about it where like they are trying to explain why Nero is a bad person. And the things that they gravitate towards are things that... I think in many readers' minds are separable from capitalism. Specifically, it's mostly just interpersonal violence and at times like larger scale state violence. They're not talking about things that I think for particularly young and impressionable people, they will read as tied to the like corrupting evils of extreme power that comes with money and money in a capitalist society. Where like it seems very clear that like the that's the picture that they're trying to paint of the triumvirate, like the source of their power and the source of their evil is money and the fact that they have a lot of it and that other people don't have a lot of it and that they are controlling people as a result of that. And like I just don't think that that the analogy, the allegory of it, I don't think is actually that strong and it is a little concerning mm. to me. And I feel like there are other choices that they can make, choices that are maybe less obviously about Greece and Rome. Mm-hmm. But even if you're going to make it about Greece and Rome, like picking yeah. the people who are the most interpersonally terrible is not the right way to allegorize capitalism, I feel like. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, even in history, like Nero was like insanely wealthy. Like he bankrupted his own people. Like that would have been a thing to bring up to like keep that connection to capitalism that his whole thing is that he is built on greed he did have a solid gold statue Mm -hmm. of himself as apollo and that was built up from the um wages of his people like he made his own people pay for this gold Mm -hmm. statue 
he let his own people die to protect his wealth. Yeah. All these sort of things, like I feel, could have been hyped up so much more to keep in with this whole situation yeah. of capitalism being the villain. And it is it is a little bit unfortunate. I feel like he could have done it a lot more. He does it a lot better in some of the following mm-hmm. books, which is the whole situation. <laughs> this. The first two books don't do it as well. The rest of them, they hit every single point that we're like, talking about right now. They hit nearly all of the ones here, which is annoying. But they don't do it from the get-go. But book two does do it a little bit better with the emperor we meet in that book. Yeah, and not even capitalism, but also like imperialism, which are obviously, they go hand in hand, but mm-hmm. I think it would have been kind of interesting. It would have been spicier from Rick, obviously, mm-hmm. if instead of this like, you know, working from the shadows triumvirate thing, if the figure of Nero was literally like currently like at place in the United States government controlling things, because then we would be able to tie more of a direct connection between America today and like the imperial superpower of Rome. The triumvirate should literally be like Elon Musk, Mitch McConnell and like um who's the third one military industrial complex maybe like I don't know but like you know like the other like piece of this is that like Nero is not believable as someone who's worshipped there are people who worship at the altar of capitalism and you could write a compelling story about that capitalism is our modern day mythology capitalism is our modern day mythology but like but people don't worship Nero as their figure of like capitalist aspiration right like they worship elon musk we still have to sell books <laughs> under our capitalist overlord disney though so i i suppose he, he weaved this in as much as he could <laughs> yeah i think he definitely misses the opportunity to talk about imperialism because i think in america we really like to look at greece as our western ancestor but it's not it's mm-hmm. rome because mm. rome was not just about discovery and expansion in the way greece was of like thought and art and like they were still shit and like did awful awful things i'm not excusing that but rome specifically was interested in expanding and like truly taking over the world in the same way that the british empire tried to and in the same way that america would have if we were old enough to have gotten in on that and still tried to in many ways and did on the land that we stole and i think it was really like obvious that he was pulling his punches in a lot of ways because Mm. he never talks about how Rome is super expansive and how Rome like tried to eat up the entirety of the world and that that's why they wanted so much money was to fund their colonizing and their imperialism and they he just chooses to leave that entire piece of the puzzle out once mm-hmm. again, this is the reason Rick can never come on Seaweed Brain, because if he came on Seaweed Brain, we'd be like, Rick, say America is bad. Say it right now. Say it on air for everyone to hear. Stop lying, Rick. I have a risky question. Does this feel a little bit like a PR cleanup, like this whole series to anyone else? Because I just feel Definitely. like like Apollo's like look to camera moment of being like just so you know the gods aren't homophobic it's embarrassing for you that you ever thought we were i don't care my son has a boyfriend i actually really like that i want to have a long ass conversation about that moment we might as well do it now i put the book down and walk away it's so cringy but lots of things like throughout the whole series it seems like like rick read his like tumblr tag complaints and was like i got to address some of these in this book And some of the ways that he addresses them are even more cumbersome than that. Like, that moment is very glaringly preachy. It's glee. It's a glee moment. (laughs) It's a glee moment, especially juxtaposed against Apollo's long-ass speech. His long-ass speech, which is not really world-consistent in the sense that we are led to believe that the gods are the, you know, representation of all ideas that make up the fabric of Western civilization. And a book published in 2014 really needs to account for the fact that there must be some sort of 
spirit of homophobia somewhere, mm. somewhere, yeah. maybe in the firmament mm. of society in the West. I get that. I, I, I can understand why he did it, but... He's still idealizing the West of very much of being like, if you thought we were homophobic, that's a you problem. As if like gay marriage wasn't illegal when <laughs> he was telling this story. I was going to say, I actually kind of liked the um, preaching moment of <laughs> Apollo uh, spiking the camera and being like, hey, gay is okay, kids. Because it is for children. And <laughs> I think it's okay to just say that to a child and they'll be like, you're right. But also... I do understand that like that pretty much completely erases the fact that the gods do are are supposed to represent the flame of Western civilization and like America's current values and the West's values. And there is literally no acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, there is still active homophobia and whatnot. Is this our is this our springboard to talk about uh, Solangelo? Maybe maybe let's pivot. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will be addressing Percy Jackson, Solangelo and the return of Leo Valdez. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so we're going to dive back into Solangelo. Basically, we left them off with a strong suggestion that there is maybe romantic vibes between the two of them. And where we pick up with them here is that they are dating. We skipped a whole bunch of stuff. They're in the throes, the thick of like a full ass normal relationship. Yay! Everybody snaps for Nico! Mm -hmm. Yay! We're so happy for him. We also get Mr. D liking a child for the first time. Yeah. The unexpected duo that is Mr. D and Nico. Mr. D out here being like, I understand what it's like to have PTSD. Let me help you with that. (laughs) Shall we read some quotes? Yeah. We're going to read some quotes because I was sort of in preparation for this episode, making this outline. I was like, what are the like iconic Will and Nico moments in this book that we have to talk about? And like the development moments. And really there aren't necessarily like super standout images or moments because of the fact that we open up on this book on them already being together. All the fun, like will they, won't they, like what's going on here was in The Blood of Olympus in like four chapters. (laughs) And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just different from Persebeth. You know, it's not like a 10 book journey. This is just Hey, Nico can be happy now. We love to see him being happy and no longer being lonely. Yeah. And we'll read some fun quotes. All right. Quote. Will turned to me. I apologize for my boyfriend. Nico rolled his eyes. Could you not? Would you prefer special guy, Will asked, or significant other? Significant annoyance in your case, Nico grumbled. <laughs> Isn't that just lovely? Adorable. <laughs> Absolutely adorable. I love special guy. <laughs> You're my special guy. He's my little special guy. Look at him. He's my just little like... special dude. <laughs> it feels like Rick almost making the joke of like best friend or like roommate. Yeah. yeah. It feels like actually a gay joke, you know? Yeah, he's roasting yeah. on him. He's like, how's your internalized homophobia today, Nico? Are you my boyfriend yeah. or are you my special Way back guy? Back in the 1940s. Boy best friends. Yeah. Here's another one. Nico, I said at last. Shouldn't you be sitting at the Hades table? He shrugged. Technically, yes. But if I sit alone at my table, strange things happen. Cracks open in the floor. Zombies crawl out and start roaming around. It's a mood disorder. I can't control it. That's what I told Chiron. And is it true? I asked. Nico smiled thinly. 
I have a note from my doctor. Will raised his hand. I'm his doctor. That's dialogue. <laughs> my favorite moment of the book. That says everything you need to know about their relationship. I feel like there's conflict of interest. Maybe he shouldn't be romantically involved with his patient, but that's just me. It's a bad idea, me and yeah, you. Isn't that, <laughs> I was going to say, isn't that like a HIPAA violation or whatever? Maybe Will shouldn't be the senior medical professional at this camp. That's just <laughs> issue. He is a child. I had one other note about Nico, which was that they depowered him. And this really frustrates me. Maybe mm. it is plot necessary. Maybe we need to have consequences for something now that death doesn't exist anymore and you can break your oaths and everything else. But after his final big shadow traveling moments at the end of Blood of Olympus, he shadow travels again, but they write it such that even when he's just moving himself around, it like really taxes him to the point of incapacitation. And that feels different from before. Mm. And it made me a little sad. And I think aside from that, we don't have that much in the way of like plot, plot development for them. Like Nico and Will provide services to the cappers, but they don't really like have experiences that define them as people. They're cute, but because they're not like the slow burn, we got a five books of Persebeth, they don't quite equate, but it's so cute. I'm excited that we're getting more development after they're already an established couple and they're going to like, we're going to see a lot of them supporting because we had everything leading up to that with Persebeth. And I personally, I don't think I would be super interested in reading about Nico's internalized homophobia, questioning whether exactly these feelings are good, questioning whether he deserves to be happy. If Will really loves yep. him, how can he love him? I'm glad that we didn't have to watch Nico suffer because I think the beginning yes. of this relationship was probably fairly traumatic, like everything else else we've gotten for him and for the gays oh you're right it probably was hard at first it was probably very hard like your first queer relationship tends to be and then of course amplified by all of nico's experiences so i'm excited that they're so strong and solid and they've even become like parental figures of the camp so you can see that they're like healthy enough to give to other people and then we're <sighs> gonna dads. see them be like a, a mm. complex, more adult kind of relationship. I mean, still teenagers, but they're going to be doing something <laughs> as like an established couple, not them like falling in love via quests. Exactly. Just like the House yeah. of Hades. Once again, you can just regurgitate to take that book and change all of the names and I will buy it and be so happy and give it a rave review. It will make my life better. Thank you, Rick and Mark. <laughs> Should we talk about Percy then? Let's talk about Percy. Let's talk about the Percy Jackson of it all. My boy, I fucking love him. My boy, that's my son. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's a Sally's pregnant, which I'm like ah. Apparently, her seven her what, what's it called her seven bean dip, whatever the hell it's called, like seven layer bean dip. Seven layer bean dip is apparently the best thing ever. It, it breaks my heart a little bit to find out because Percy was essentially missing for a year. Mm -hmm. He missed 11th grade. So in order to go to college, he has to do like a bunch of extra classes and studying. And like, he has to take these specialized demigod tests. It's called the D-stomp, the demigod standard test of mad <laughs> powers. That is only a thing in New Rome, of course, because of course New Rome would believe in the tyranny of standardized testing. <laughs> Camp Half-Load would be like, you should submit a portfolio that represents you. <laughs> it's a really weird experience for like the heartbreaking aspect of Percy's character this book isn't him being missing isn't him losing someone it's him having to face with the reality of how his demigod life affects his mortal life mm -hmm. 
and how he has to do is all this extra schooling stuff just to catch up. It's also, I think, pretty representative of, you know, a lot of people with neurodivergent problems who I personally had like some problems in my senior year and in my junior year of high school where I had to like do a lot of catch up. I know friends mm-hmm. who had to do that. Mm-hmm. So it both hits a little close to home. And also it's just heartbreaking for his character that the main villain for him, this story isn't like Nero, it's standardized testing. <laughs> I think there's a line where Apollo is like, oh, demigods, why does college have to happen to the best of them? Or something like that. (laughs) I think that this appearance of Percy is the greatest, most delicious and well-deserving moment of fan service in the history of all of media ever. (laughs) Rick bringing Percy into like the first several pages and then the final several pages of this book is absolutely genius. It's the best part of the book, hands down, period. (laughs) He is so tired and just, he's like at his persassiest. Like he is the most imper- impersonant that he has ever been before because <laughs> he's sick of like being in school all day. A couple great quotes. He's like, yep, that pretty much describes my life because Poseidon. <laughs> Here's a good one from when they're on their way to Camp Half-Blood. Meg turned and gazed out the rear windshield, probably checking for any shiny blobs pursuing us. At least we're not being, don't say it, Percy warned. Meg huffed. You don't know what I was going to... You were going to say, at least we're not being followed, Percy said. That'll jinx us. Immediately, we'll notice that we are being followed. Then we'll end up in a big battle that totals my family car and probably destroys the whole freeway. Then we'll have to run all the way to camp. Meg's eyes widened. You can tell the future? Don't need to. Percy changed lanes to one that was crawling slightly less slowly. I've just done this a lot. I like how he kind of jinxed himself like immediately at that point because he said it <laughs> i was listening to the audiobook and that part played my mom's a nurse and she immediately walked past and said oh that was a mistake and she just left <laughs> <the same thing. laughs> i just love percy driving like to camp half i hate that he's driving alone he's like an older brother in this he's such a mentor figure yeah the fact of like driving them like don't you feel comfortable we the reader are being like driven by percy in this isn't yes. that incredibly soothing? Doesn't that like really rewire something in you? Yes. We should mention that Percy basically has become sort of like a, a satyr almost um, for Camp Half-Blood in that he is like basically helps escort people from NYC whenever he can to Camp Half-Blood. I just want to point out that's that's arguably my favorite part about Percy's character here. He helps out when he can. Keyword when he can. Even when he drops Apollo and Meg off, he's like, yeah, if I'm not too busy with homework and stuff, I might drop by this Saturday, you know? Yes, exactly. It's so sweet. I also really like that when things get too big, Percy is the older brother that they call at the end. Yes. He really has assumed a mentor role where he didn't need to be doing the legwork of the entire book, but when push came to shove, they could still call him and does feel like really healthy boundaries. And I know House of Hades was this whole, we need to step back, but then in Blood of Olympus, he was still part of the central team. And so I feel like it didn't feel like as good of payoff but then seeing like they don't get to camp super safely and he still turns around and only comes back when they need him is Mm -hmm. like really excellent payoff yes absolutely he's taking a step back but he still is a child of the big three gods and he does have this like responsibility to help the other kids so he He helps out where he can yeah and they use his like power of brute force and magical water (laughs) to you know help them out whenever they need him in the final battle is adorable I don't think that we're going to read the whole thing, but the passage where Apollo first shows up and asks him for help, it like plays on all the themes that we've described, but there's something very moving about watching Percy repeatedly keep saying no to someone who is a god asking for help and giving his reasons and being like, there are things that I need to do and that there are things that I like want to accomplish. 
this is really the part where he says, like, I want to be around when, like, my little sibling shows up. Like, that's... Yes! Big Brother that's Percy! big! <laughs> <laughs> if my life is going to mean anything, I have to live it myself. <laughs> I think there was a line that Apollo, like, noticed. When, when he gets to the apartment, Percy sort of gives him this look of, like, oh, my God, why? Mm-hmm. He's like, why me? I don't need this anymore. Like, Annabeth told me no more. Yeah, literally, he was like, Annabeth was like, don't get into any trouble, right, (laughs) while I'm gone. (laughs) Annabeth would be so pissed if I got involved in another life-ending quest just when we're about to go to college. Anything else specific, Percy, or should we just make some quick notes on on Leo returning here? Here's the quick notes on Leo. Leo comes back. We hate it. He's the companion for the next book. That's about it. Yeah, I guess that is kind of it. I mean, I just would love to, again, reiterate that he should have stayed dead. And I think that... (laughs) Yes. Again, everyone kind of agrees about that. He should have yeah. stayed dead. Or he could have just like stayed with Calypso on Ogigia. Yeah. Also that. He should have just not been near us is the main thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He can be somewhere far <laughs> away. Keep him away from me personally. Sacrifices should mean something. Sacrifices um, should mean something. So sacrifice yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite response that I've ever seen. So I did like a video about this like ages ago. For Leo Valdez saying he should have stayed dead. <laughs> But my favorite comment on that is that they said he should have died, but Festus should have still gone and made it to Calypso and rescue her. So Leo's final thing is he's fully sacrificed himself and programmed Festus to still go save Calypso. Oh, that's good. Why is for his friends and for Calypso? See, we all only like Festus. Festus is highly underrated. (laughs) Um, Okay, I was really irritated by the specific part of Leo's return where we are led to believe throughout this book that Nico has a strong emotional relationship with Leo. Like there's a moment earlier also where Nico brings out the scroll of Leo's message. And he's like, I'm so mad at Leo for not telling me about when he's going to come back. We have literally never seen Nico and Leo interact in a one-on-one setting. Yeah. What, what is going on here? Maybe he's just trying to gaslight us. He is trying to make us believe that everyone he likes are friends and we should also like, I'm not falling for that. <laughs> He is leading us to believe that. I think that Nico would hate Leo. Nico, <laughs> Nico would wouldn't. hate Leo. Leo is documented as hating Nico at an yes. earlier point in the books. He said he should stay dead and stay missing. Like, let the boy die, he said. This is not giving. Nico hates reasonable people. There's no way he wouldn't hate Leo. Leo is like everything he has a problem with of like toxic masculinity, the people who made him feel uncomfortable with his queerness. In yes. addition, just like yes. general loudness and like immaturity. All the ladies love Leo. I don't think Nico would like kill him or like keep him out of camp or something. But like, would Even he? Bryce be... Lawrence his ass. <laughs> like, do we expect Nico to like literally be running the organization of people who are getting in line to reunite with Leo when he returns to the camp? No. Well, no, yes, that's bad writing. It was Nico's idea for them all to punch him. That still doesn't feel on brand for Nico. It still does not feel on brand. Nico should be sleeping. He should be resting his eyes and his social abilities at home. Resting his eyes instead of setting his eyes on Leo's stupid face. Realistically, Nico would be like, why are you the one who got to cheat death? Like out of everybody. Yeah, honestly, oh, Nico would have been like, okay, so explain to me how this worked. Because, like, you know, I thought something maybe yeah. was up, but you definitely did die. Like, that would have been cool dialogue. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I yeah. feel like it would have pissed him off that he's the one who, like, got around it. Like, out of everybody that Nico's lost. Yeah. I feel like it should have pissed him off because his dad's the god of the underworld where people should go and remain dead. <laughs> he's like, my dad works hard. You should stay dead. <laughs> Literally, where was the physician's cure for Bianca? Bianca! 
that's exactly Nico's thought process. Even if he keeps it to himself because he's at a place in his healing journey where he knows that's not healthy and definitely Slay, not something Nico. you say aloud to another person, it's his internal dialogue <laughs> that he talks to Will about when they're like in his cabin. Oh, yeah. Sitting in the little coffin. And that's because Nico is on a healing journey and Leo is not. Leo still says it all out loud to another person. Leo's in a steep decline. <laughs> I have a thing. I have a thing. Nico should be angry at Leo because he made Hazel keep a secret that devastated her. That too. Many reasons. Her and Frank's emotional devastation and feeling responsible for what happened to Leo Absolutely. should have made Nico livid because that is his sister that someone else has taken advantage of. Someone else has taken advantage of another one of his sisters. He would not stand for it. It, it is compulsory friendship with heterosexuality. Do you, do you, do you know what I mean? Where like Your gay people have to be friends with straight people? Well, because in this book, like Nico has to talk to somebody. He's not just going to talk to Will. So I guess then because everyone else is straight. He would obviously in real life just talk to Will, but we need to see him, which means he needs to talk to somebody else. And Kyron, because he bonded with his English teacher, you know? Yeah. Or Mr. D, because, you know, Mr. D's healing, not healing, treating his PTSD. Right. Which is not equating mental illness to madness is that what rick did in this something book? like that he's trying to equate it like dionysus has a broad scope over quote-unquote madness which can brought it into general mental illness because i mean madness like even a hundred years ago was just like general depression or anxiety right. or whatever apollo mm. is the god of medicine but dionysus is the god of mental health <laughs> yeah yeah but with the beast as well like, he, he proposes that Nero has a split personality, kind of. Like, that's what he hints at, as if that's not something that your brain does when you are the victim of trauma to protect yourself. Right. It, like, yeah. makes it out to be this villainous trait, kind of like the movie Split, which is not Wait. good. Yeah. I, okay. I would say I would somewhat disagree with that. Yeah, like, I think he's trying to paint it more like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. I think he's just manipulative. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, was, I, was I, was gonna, I thought it was literally... This is just a thing you say to a child yeah. to discipline them. Yeah. I literally think Nero is the creepiest villain we've ever encountered. I agree with that because he's so, so it's abusive like to children. Number one, Nero, and number yes. two, Orion. But Nero is worse than Orion because of the way he speaks to Meg. Yeah. 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 Their relationship is fascinating. Yes. I will say very quickly, someone we didn't bring up, but is a fun, great character who does have some relevance. No spoilers. <clears throat> Startest thou, plaguey, plaguey, plaguey. The enchantment does not start. Plaguey, plaguey, plaguey. Okay, the plague arrow is iconic. I, I <laughs> Arrow of Dodona. Yeah, the arrow of Dodona. By the way, like the main, like the only form of prophecy they have at the end of this book is like a magic forest. Okay. I actually love it. that. I love the magic forest. I, I love, love the magic forest. I like it too. It's just like, it's just weird. It's just like the only way you can get your prophecies now is just you got to listen to the trees. Okay, Good. I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take it. Well, we, we really tried to cram as much as we possibly could in here. I'm sure that we didn't address absolutely every aspect of this book because if we allowed ourselves more than 90 minutes to talk about it, I think it wouldn't have been enjoyable to listen to. It would get even more sour. It would get us negative <laughs> reviews. That being said, give us a nice review wherever you're listening. We really appreciate it. We will link the social media handles and links to um, all of these wonderful people's different podcasts in our show notes. Thank you so you much. You know who we are. Megan, Fran, and Robert for being here today. This closes the book on The Hidden Oracle. Next time, we'll be back with Magnus Chase Book 2. Ooh.
Oh, wow. Perhaps the most <laughs> exciting one of all of season three. And then we will be back with uh, Trials of Apollo book two. So thank you guys so much for being here. Yeah. yeah, thank you for having us. See you guys next time. Bye, Bye. Bye.